0: Welcome to this episode of Heart Failure in Focus. I'm your host, Muthu Variganathan, and this podcast is hosted by Radcliffe Medical Education and is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Please note this podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. Welcome back to Heart Failure in Focus, hosted by Radcliffe Cardiology. It's really a pleasure to be joined by a friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Beekam Boskart. She is the Senior Dean of Faculty at Baylor College of Medicine and a Professor of Medicine. She was a co-chair of the recent 2022 ACCHA HFSA Heart Failure Guidelines and a world-renowned cardiologist. Um, and it's really a delight. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Mutu.
0: So we will be discussing uh, something of really paramount importance in the heart failure field. In the last couple of years, we've seen a kind of a a large-scale shift towards focusing on upfront guideline-directed medical therapy, focusing on the four pillars of care. Um, And that's had important implications on other aspects of care as well. And um, you have really led the charge in, uh, especially on the U.S. front, in terms of delivering that message of four pillars up front. And um, I'd like to start off and um, really um, get into some of the specifics around Uh, related aspects of heart failure care and we'll begin with uh, device and procedural implications. Um, uh, ICD has been, um, uh, implantable cardiovascular defibrillators have really been a critical component of heart failure care. Um, And traditionally we've um, been taught at least to wait for several months to allow medical therapy to uh, achieve remodeling effects and anti-arrhythmic effects. But that landscape is rapidly changing. And so, how do you foresee ICD decision making um, evolve in the contemporary era of guideline direct medical therapy?
1: Thank you, Mutu. This is a critical question. In the 2022 ACCHA HFSA guidelines, we have a stepwise approach. Uh, first step is to initiate the quadruple therapy with uh, RAS inhibition, either with ARNI or ACE inhibitors or ARP. SGLT2 inhibition, MRA and beta blockers. The second step is after initiation of the quadruple therapy is to optimize the doses. The third step is to reassess EF and uh, determine additional therapies such as hydralazine nitrates for African-Americans and or ICD and CRTD. In the guidelines, we did not specify a certain time frame. Uh, i.e. three months uh, to wait or longer to wait, um, partly because we are aware that this needs to be individualized. In the ESC guidelines, though, there is a statement to wait uh, three months before consideration of the ICD CRTD. In the US guidelines, we emphasize optimize, optimize GDMT. And uh, in individuals that you see an improvement in either EF as well as um, reversal of remodeling with reduction in volumes, if the EF is coming close to the cutoff point, i.e., 35%. Um, In individuals, uh, it may be rational to wait a little bit longer than maybe three months to see whether one can have that optimization. But in an individual with a scarred ventricle with ventricular tachyarrhythmias, then it may not be necessary to wait that long. And thus, the patient's phenotype and profile is also critical as to how long to wait. But the most important concept is optimize the background therapy because the quadruple therapy, um, especially the newer agents such as sglt 2 inhibition RNA as well as the older agents such as beta blockers are known to result in reversal of remodeling as well as reduction in sudden cardiac death. So having optimal background therapy is critical before ICD. And uh, keep in mind that uh, Uh, The time frame of uh, three months is not the time frame to initiate the GDMT. We would expect the GDMT quadruple therapy, as it's stated in the guidelines, to be initiated as quickly as possible, um, sometimes at low doses. um, And the sequence may uh, be um, individualized according to etiology and phenotypes. But one should not wait three months to optimize the GDMT. One should try to optimize the GDMT in four to six weeks, uh, but the optimization of the doses subsequently may take a bit longer. And if you're seeing improvement in the EF, uh, then maybe waiting a um, three to four months or um, somewhere around that time frame may be helpful.
0: Yeah, I, I think that message of optimize and individualize is really a critical one, and um, especially in a shifting landscape in which we've seen at least from an epidemiological perspective, lower rates of sudden death in this population in recent years. Um, I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts in terms of CRT decision making, um, especially CRTP if, if in, in certain cases, if, if um, uh, because we you know at least in the historical trials of CRT we've seen really very important remodeling effects and improvements in clinical outcomes and health status and so clearly it should have a role but who, who would be an important candidate for CRT in current care?
1: Um- The CRT recommendations in the guidelines have not changed uh, from the former guidelines, i.e. left bundle branch block and QRS over 150 milliseconds is the class one indication. And thus, those individuals with left bundle um, certainly benefits. And of course, the other permutations of uh, wider QRS but non-left bundle also come as Uh, recommendations in the class two category. Now, who would not get the CRTD, meaning the defibrillator? Maybe the individuals who uh, either have contraindications to defibrillator, i.e. those individuals with very advanced NYHA class Uh, with life expectancy less than a year, but potentially can have improvement in their quality of life. And those are the individuals who at the time of a device insertion may be considered for CRTP alone. Uh, But the other individuals could be individuals who potentially can uh, have improvement in their EF coming to the um, EF uh, category of not needing ICD and but still having a wide QRS. So those two categories are probably the individuals who may benefit from CRTP
0: key Wonderful, wonderful. I want to shift gears a bit on a related note of procedural care and many of our patients with heart failure are referred to interventional cardiologists, structural um, heart uh, specialists for evaluation of valvular heart disease that's commonly comorbid in heart failure. And we know that many of the medical therapies that we've been discussing have important effects on especially Mitral and tricuspid regurgitation and so how does this actually play out in clinical practice Um, and should these same patients with, for instance, heart failure with reduced EF, severe MR or TR be first seen by a heart failure specialist? Should they see together? Are there kind of best practices that you envision for implementation of structural heart procedures in heart failure care?
1: Um, in the co-op trial, which uh, our recommendations were formulated from in the guidelines uh, for consideration of transcatheter h to h mitral valve repair, the referral pathway entailed um, the involvement of a heart failure specialist that optimized a guideline-directed medical therapy. And that uh, by itself. The optimization of GDMT as a background is a class one indication before consideration of any valvular interventions such as transcatheter, edge to H mitral valve repair. Now, um, though that was the case in the COAP trial, which entailed very um, established uh, centers uh, with heart failure excellence, um, I think one needs to individualize depending on their own um, regional um, centers, Mm -hmm. as well as the availability of certain specialists. So partnered multidisciplinary care coordination is critical. That also is a class one recommendation, valvular heart disease in our guidelines. Meaning um, in your institution, uh, I'm certain that in the setting of a valvular heart disease, there's usually an involvement of an interventional cardiologist along with a CT surgeon, along with Um, heart failure specialists. So, utilize the framework, what exists at your center, and uh, recognize that multidisciplinary care coordination is key. Um, And again, in those centers that may not have the availability of such interventionalists and or CT surgeons, referral to such a center is also critical. I think uh, one needs to look at the resources available at their regions and centers um, and uh, consider these referrals being aware of the recommendations for these opportunities, for these treatment strategies to be made available for the patients. In individuals with severe functional M- MR with an EF of 20 to 50%, uh, with left ventric and systolic dimension less than 70 and with optimal uh, PA pressures, actually um, transcatheter um, H2H mitral valve repair now has a class 2A recommendation to be considered.
0: Yeah, so I, I 100% agree that the CoAP trial has um, uh, has formulated really a paradigm multidisciplinary care approach, and um, many ongoing device trials have adapted similar approaches of paired um, interventional heart failure specialists to be able to uh, co lead these trials. And I um, I also agree that uh, restricting uh, this access to only sites with that type of specialty care may be overly restrictive and may not democratize our our heart failure care approaches. And so instead, um, probably envisioning some kind of hybrid approach in which we're able to um, use hub centers that have this type, this level of expertise, and then be able to even serve in, in a virtual capacity, for instance, to optimize heart failure care at a number of centers that have the procedural expertise to under, undertake these uh, these approaches, and so that ideally will be an approach we can embrace moving forward.
1: Spoken Hub concept, I think, is critical for advanced therapies, and we're seeing actually, uh, even during COVID, we have seen um, evolving new models of care, such as uh, multidisciplinary, tumor board-like consultations. So I think that model is here to stay, and I think that will facilitate um, and accelerate care. Um, especially um, in centers that may not have availability of these services, such as rural areas. So I think the the concept ha- has uh, evolved and is here to stay.
0: Perfect. So become, um, we're going to shift gears again um, and discuss now other medical therapy options for heart failure. Um, we, uh, we all have recognized that heart failure is tremendously complex and um, has an, a number of pathophysiological processes that may extend well beyond the um, that targeted by the four pillars. Um, and so the guidelines have uh, really specified a number of different approaches, um, sometimes even a stepwise approach um, to care in patients who are either already um, optimized on four pillars or who are unable to tolerate one or more of the pillars. And so I wanted to discuss um, some of these options. And, you know, in, in current care, many patients may be eligible for these therapies, at least looking at their broad um, blood pressure kidney function, um, uh, and um, uh, other inclusion criteria, per se, for the trials or their uh, FDA labeling. However, you know, in practice, many of them may not already be optimized on four four pillars. And so how do you envision um, moving forward in terms of these, let's call them second-line therapies, um, how do you envision their implementation? Because we already have uh, important, important challenges to implementation of first-line care. Um, so does the box stop there? Does patient uh, Do patients really need to first clear the bar of four uh, uh, pillar care before starting or being considered for these second-line options?
1: Great question. In the U.S. guidelines, in the 2022 U.S. guidelines, we addressed iron deficiency as a comorbidity. So it was not necessarily uh, classified as the add-on therapies. And that is actually important to recognize because treatment of comorbidities, depending on the comorbidity and the severity, actually can be concomitant as you're optimizing heart failure care. Uh, For example... Uh, evaluation of ischemia and treatment of ischemia is a comorbidity concept, or treatment of atrial fibrillation is a comorbidity concept, um, as well as valvular heart disease is recognized as a comorbidity and or another entity concept. So when do you initiate the therapies for the comorbidities will depend on whether the symptoms deterioration can be attributable to the comorbidities as well. The way I would approach is in addition to, because we are aware that in heart failure, step one is quadruple therapy, but at the same time, if the comorbidity is a competing diagnosis along with heart failure or is contributing to worsening of heart failure, especially for that episode, one can prioritize Co-treatment of the comorbidities. For example, hypertension is a comorbidity. If the blood pressure is too high, one will of course address the, the blood pressure by initiation and optimization of the GDMT doses, not waiting in a stepwise fashion uh, for the next iteration of the doses to be able to optimize the optimal control of blood pressure to a less than 130 over 80. So that concept is in essence um, addressed as. The severity as well as uh, the proximate cause of um, attribution of the symptoms to the comorbidities, and I think iron deficiency in that context comes as um, an opportunity for treatment, especially for hospitalized patients. We have seen in the AFFIRM trial for the safety um, and the implied efficacy of the AFFIRM trial, especially with the sensitivity analysis of the pre-COVID enrollment, demonstrating benefit in uh, reduction hospitalizations. Thus. IV iron therapies, which now have a class 2a indication, the guidelines can be considered uh, pre-discharge for patients um, who does have iron deficiency. And yes, it does result in improvement in quality of life, functional capacity, and the affirmed trial suggests reduction hospitalization. So it could be complementary to the uh, quadruple therapy and the GTMT.
0: No, that's a really nice formulation of parallel treatment of heart failure and comorbidity management. And so moving ahead and, and now putting on the hat of, let's say drug development, uh, developer sponsors, um, how do you foresee heart failure care evolving beyond four pillars? And, and so what is the bar currently to be called a pillar? Um, do we, uh, does a therapy need to clear uh, a more, provide a clear mortality benefit in a population? Does it need to um, provide incremental benefit beyond even in patients already treated with four pillars? um, Is there a a, a clear definition or um, uh, guidance in terms of um, what we are calling as a community, um, a pillar of heart failure care?
1: Great question. I think the trial results are uh, changing the way we are formulating this. So currently, um, the the quadruple therapy has concordance of outcome benefit um, across cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. But there's very interesting trends that are evolving too. The new agents also result in rather rapid and sustained improvements in quality of life, um, functional as well as functional capacity with certain agents, and thus um, the The concordance of outcome benefit that are both clinician centric, meaning reduction in uh, cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization, as well as patient centric, meaning improvement in symptoms, quality of life, now are coming hand in hand and uh, creating a formulation by which we say these therapies are going to improve clinical hard endpoints as well as patient reported outcomes such as quality of life. I believe the new pillar to be added as a fifth concept will need to have that kind of a concordance of endpoints, but. We also need to learn from other disease states, such as cancer. When you look at the chemotherapy, adjunct therapies can be added to the initial bundle of an induction therapy for either uh, uh, patient-related outcomes as well as safety concepts. So in essence, add-on therapies, especially if it were to facilitate, enable optimization of these life-saving therapies and or have Improvement in other complementary outcomes, especially in terms of the kidney and potassium and others, potentially can be a bundled concept. We have seen the results in polypill in uh, cardiovascular disease, and thus uh, we are in need of simplified High, uh, perhaps higher yield therapies. And as to how we're going to do this bundling, how would, are we going to simplify this regimen, and the number of pills for patients to take, are, I think are going to be hand-in-hand concepts. The other thing that is evolving is add-on therapies. So once, the let's say, this, these disease-modifying agents are initiated, we also recognize uh, phenotypic Individualization according to uh, patient's specifications, such as let's say an individual with very advanced heart failure with very low EF, with a blood pressure on the low side, one can consider agents that are potentially uh, affecting the contractile performance, such as uh, cardiac myosin activators and or um, maybe um, soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators, especially in individuals who may be with um, recent hospitalization um, and or with a certain perhaps uh, future for moderate, moderate heart failure or recently um, perhaps uh, decompensated heart failure. So these individualizations, I think, are going to be the style by which we're going to add on therapies. And I think the agents that we have, as we have, for example, ivabradine for those individuals with elevated heart rate despite beta blockade, or very siguat in the uh, guidelines as a class to be for those individuals with recent heart failure hospitalizations, um, in essence, reflect this add-on therapy for specific phenotypes.
0: Yeah, I, I, I um, you know, you clearly have a uh, a wonderful world view of heart failure and I, it, um, uh, it shows in, uh, in every concept you put forth and uh, we've, uh, I continue to learn from you not only as a uh, guideline chair but as serving under you and your leadership as uh, editor-in-chief of Jack Heart Failure and it is um, uh, a tremendous honor for you to join us on Heart Failure and Focus and uh, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and your time.
1: Thank you, Mutu, for your kind comments. It was a pleasure to contribute. Thank you again.
0: All right. And look forward uh, to our listeners uh, in joining us again for next month's episode of Heart Failure in Focus. Thank you all.